You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Rodney, it's just you and me this morning. Wow. I mean, I, I don't know. How do we do this without Mark? How do we do this without making fun of Patrick's clothes? Well, I mean, what is this? We can make fun of them in absentia. That can be very entertaining. Yeah, we can yeah. do that. I mean, Uh-oh. Mark's changing diapers this morning or avoiding changing diapers. Patrick is unquestionably on the golf course. It's rainy here, so I can't play today, but I'm sure he's whacking at you know the little white ball but rodney you i i think your attire this morning is extremely impressive you've got you got maize and blue on your shirt i do and i appreciate you pointing that out before we got on the air but um thankfully there's no u of m i mean it might be michigan colors but you know, I hopefully I won't get shot here in central Illinois for wearing something that looks like Michigan. Exactly. So let's take the Beltway briefing in a little bit of a different direction this morning. I obviously folks that listen to this know what we do for a living, which is talk to your now former colleagues and their staffs and people in the executive branch about about what our clients hire us to talk about, which is a myriad of issues. There's the what, there's also the the how, like what, as a former member, what makes an, an effective lobbyist when somebody walks through the door? What makes an ineffective lobbyist? And maybe I'll talk about it from an executive branch perspective and as well, and, and what works and doesn't work on on that side of the ledger so we can ask each other questions to, to some <laughs> degree but let's go there what you're you're a former member and a former staffer which there are those out there few and far between so you've seen it from from all sides what makes a good lobbyist you know i'll be honest with you you know my 16 years as a staffer i got to meet a lot of folks in in the lobbying business and the advocacy business and what makes a, a good lobbyist or good advocate uh, or a, a good constituent coming in and getting their point heard yeah. in a very limited amount of time really is no different than any other ex- any other profession in the country. You've got to be nice and you got to know your issues. So maximize your opportunity to get in front of the policymaker or the uh yeah, get in front of the policymaker, either elected or appointed uh, as a staffer, uh, obviously. But in the end, what makes a good lobbyist is the same thing, the same attributes that makes that person a good a good person. I always say, I think it's deference. I think clients that come in thinking that understanding that they're talking to people in positions of power particularly when you're talking to a staffer and they may be half or a third of your age and being deferential, notwithstanding the fact that they may be young, they mean they don't know your issue. Like, you know, your issue, you've got to be polite and deferential. And yeah, I think nice. It goes, it goes a long way, but it's critical. If you don't have that, if you're not deferential, if you don't know how to talk to folks, you're done. You're done. I I, can, I had plenty of experience like that when I was a staffer for another member of Congress. You know, it, it was my job to know the issues and brief my boss on all of the issues that that folks uh, like clients of yours were coming in to talk to him about. So we became kind of issue area experts uh, on a wide variety of them. You know, whatever our boss assigned us. Uh, what used to just get me boiling would be when my boss would have an idea and somebody would come in after we've done all this research and just, you know, decide to trash it. And that would get our feathers ruffled 
And then we would kind of just bark back, you know, why wouldn't you want this? Why wouldn't you need this? This is what you need. But deference is deference is is a good description but i would also say polite conversation uh have your know your issue and that's one thing that i saw as a member that a lot of groups would come in and they certainly wouldn't know their issue i had a group one time a group of local people that Mm -hmm. i knew some of them and they came in touting the national group's agenda and the issue, uh, these were realtors, okay? This, this is why they had a wide-scale change in the entire governmental affairs shop at the National Association of Realtors. They came in and told me with a straight face a few years ago that their number one issue was net neutrality. And That's I, insane. Oh, I looked at the guys I knew. I'm like, I know what your internet service is like. I'm on it. What do you mean net neutrality? Nobody's getting throttled in central Illinois. Are you kidding me? This is what you're taking your 15 minutes to come in and advocate for on behalf of realtors across the nation. So those are the types of things that that also come into play for our profession, Howard. Now, where I'm at now, we've got to make sure our clients understand they got a limited amount of time, do some background, understand the issues and where that member or staffer for that member actually is on our issues. So you don't waste a lot of time on on debating things that you should know where that policymaker already stands. Well, and you've got to know the issue. I always say for us in terms of our role, it's we've got 90 seconds. Our role is a 90 second spiel at the beginning of a meeting to kind of set it up and set the tone. And then typically you hand it off to the client and they've got to, they've got to be prepared. We prepare our clients, but they've got to deliver. First of all, a lot of clients get nervous. I mean, that's one one funny thing (laughs) is you bring these high powered, you know, fortune 500 C-suite folks in. And I mean, these, they're like the Kings and Queens of the universe. And then you, you put them in front of, a staffer, let alone a member, and they they forget who they are. And oh, yeah, I've seen it. Which, I've witnessed it. Yeah, which by the way is like there's there's deference, and then there's like crumbling. It's silly. I mean, these are normal people you can have a conversation with. Yeah, and they're your clients, and you walk out, and they're like, "How'd I do?" And you're like, right. "Ah, great." <laughs> You yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. were awesome. Maybe the next one, let's think about doing it this way. Um, but uh, look, we witnesses in, in Brittany Randall, who was my scheduler for years, who works with us now is kind of helps coordinate the podcast. And she's on here too. She's laughing. I guarantee I'm mute because I would have groups come in and they would, I, I mean, I, sometimes I would know them and I'm like, why are you laughing me on an issue? You know, I'm already a co-sponsor of. Right. You have clearly wasted your time. Just come in and say thank you in 30 seconds and leave. (laughs) 30 seconds. And then let's talk about fun things that don't have to do with policy. Or or if you've got another priority that's a little lower priority as an organization. Um, I have witnessed the I have witnessed people in the the highest powers, uh, the highest levels of power in Washington walk into a meeting and and basically pee their pants. And (laughs) I've seen it at the White House level. I've seen it at the congressional level. Yeah. And it's amazing to me. Some of the most socially awkward people I ever served with in Congress are the ones that when a camera turns on and it's a Fox News interview or an MSNBC interview, they don't miss a beat. But without that camera in front of them, they can't look somebody in the eye and talk to them. And that is where that is where uh, advocates, you know, on what we do now yeah. is so important to let our clients know. If you haven't been out here, this is what you should expect. Don't expect this to be a 30-minute meeting where you're going to sit down and have a deep policy discussion. It is educate, understand, and get to know the people that are in those Great. positions because no. most of your issues are not going to be solved in one session. Well, it's also we always what we always tell our clients, of course, is you want to build a relationship Um before you have, before the house is burning, before you have an urgent ask. It, and these are relationships. They're not, there's a reason people call what we do government relations. It, it's a relationship. 
And you've got to build the relationship, build it over time. All too often, you know, clients engage when the house is on fire. And look, there's always there's always work to be done, but it's a heck of a lot better when you've got the relationship. You built it over time with key members of Congress, those who represent you geographically, those who um, substantively sit on committees that have a reason to care about your issue or whatever it is. And, and you know them. So when you walk through the door, they already know you, you've already kind of passed the, I'm a good person. You know, my company's a good company test and you can talk about what you need. Yeah. You're you're hundred percent right. And, and don't underestimate the relationships between, um, you know, member to member, staffer to staffer, mm-hmm. and how important that is to kind of uh, to kind of get the foot in the door early on. Uh, you know, Brittany can tell you that if somebody she knew in another office said, "Hey, you know, Howard Schweitzer has a group coming in. Uh, he's with Cozen O'Connor. Could you pre- can you make sure because your boss sits on the committee of jurisdiction, for example, can you make sure that you you do what you can to get the member in the meeting, uh, or understand that the staffer who's in charge knows." that there's a previous relationship here. I mean, you know, you know, Howard, before you ghosted me the entire month of August last year, we had a great conversation uh, before I, I decided to to come to Cozen. And it was, it was immediately comforting to get on the Zoom that we did to see my former staffer friend, Towner French. You know, Towner was somebody that I knew before I got elected. And if, if Towner French would have ever called me or any of my team, when he was lobbying, the answer was yes, you got a meeting because there is that relationship, there's that familiarity, but there's also the understanding that he knows that he knows the house, he knows the process, and he's not going to come in here and ask me for something impossible or put a priority list in front of me like net neutrality in central Illinois. Right, right. Uh, I, I think it's important also to go in understanding potential point when you're getting to know somebody we always try to find for our clients points of connectivity like where'd you go to college maybe of course i you know immediately bond with anybody wearing maize and blue rodney except Um, me except me today except you today (laughs) globalist um you know whatever it is whatever it is points of commonality find a way to bond with people Absolutely. It's like any other relationship is the bottom line. And if, if, and if you have, if you're able to get aligned on an issue, um, you get aligned on the issue. You're not pulling the wool over anybody's eyes when you're coming in from the outside. And by the way, I think another, I think a misconception about lobbying is that big business walks through the door uh, you know, uh, with members of Congress who are like predisposed to take the side of business and they have an issue and boom, it's like the members supportive that that also isn't the, that isn't the way this goes. You you have to find you're always looking for the win win. It's why I tell people who are on the inside who are mystified by what we do for a living that I still feel every day like I'm playing a role in government to some degree because you're looking for the win-win. We're using our knowledge of what makes people tick to find the win-win. It's not, you know, it's not 1975 with cigar smoke-filled rooms and pats on the back. It's finding points of commonality and working your issue and building a coalition of support inside government around inside Congress around your issue over time and, and pushing it forward. That's what this is about. It, it really is. And, and uh, there can still be some cigar smoking in certain <laughs> of Congress's offices. Go see my good buddy, Troy Nels. He'll gladly offer you one. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, but also, everything you said is is correct. It, it is about it is about um, you know it's it's about government relations. It's about going in and keeping that relationship, building that relationship, keeping it strong. But also understand too, um, there's some insecurities on behalf of the members. 
Um, members don't want to, to tell you they don't know all your issues. Uh, they don't want to seem like they're not grasping what your ask is. I mean, I will tell you, uh, one mm. of my most embarrassing moments as a freshman, I, I, I screwed up the name of, and you'll, you'll like this since you were there, the XM Bank. I mean, I kept calling it XMIM. And then afterwards, I'm like, what, what is wrong with me? And then, I, you know, I felt like I had to go overboard later to do what I could to understand the issue even more so. So if a member makes a mistake and his staffer corrects it later, that's a good thing because they're now going to really focus on your issue so you don't think they're stupid and yeah. you don't think they don't know it and don't know how it impacts their district. But also understand, too, especially when you're building that relationship, that elected official is working in an environment where it's tough to trust a lot of people. Yeah, um, it, it is. I always said politics, even when I was a staffer in government, it, it's a game where, unfortunately, your your number of true friends shrinks the longer you're in it uh, because yeah. you realize some of those true friends aren't really true friends and, and they only want you for something. Um but in the in in the sense, what did LBJ say? If you need a friend in Washington, get a dog. Get a dog. You see me walking my dog out there. You'll know I got nobody left. Uh, but in the end, it it's 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 a back and forth, and 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 we need to understand too that that elected official um, wants to know how this impacts his or her district. The staffer wants to yeah. be able to get local priorities and local impacts if you're meeting with him or her to that member. Because yeah. they want to be able to bring that back to how it's important to the member back home. Because really, that was that's the message I give to every freshman when I've run orientation the last three election cycles. Is like, look, you can come out here and you can say you're going to balance the budget. You can say that you're going to repeal Obamacare. You're going to institute an assault weapons ban, blah, blah, blah. Do you really believe that you as a freshman are going to lead health care reform? No, it's going to be the chair of energy and do you, do you think you were going to lead tax reform? No, it's the chair of ways and means. But what you have to do is find some issues that impact your voters back home. And then you go back home and you talk about how you're fixing this crazy place. And here's how it impacts my jobs back home. Here's how, here's why you sent me there to focus on you as constituents and, and, a, and as a, a client, if you can find that nexus Mm -hmm. That will be the best 15 minute meeting of any member or staffer's day, because that makes a point that this matters to my boss. This matters more so to his or her constituents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, yeah, that's very, very well said. Very, very well said. Um, it doesn't stop people from being stupid. I, no. always, I always enjoy the way I'm on all sides, but <laughs> yeah, I, I loved it when people would come in and, and they'd start arguing for something that I, you know, you could tell the consultant sitting there. And as soon as this person brings it up, they're just like, they start rubbing their head yeah, and because they know that that's like a, that's, that's like a, you know, throwing something at my head and I got the dodge. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> let's engage. Uh, I had, had a group one time, great friends, uh, big supporters, road builders, I mean, I've always said there's no way you're going to pass a gas tax only in Congress. So why fight it? And you know where you're going to get pass a, 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 a miles travel tax? And they somebody inevitably in the group, a large group, would come in and say, why can't you just vote for the gas tax? Nobody's going to notice at the gas pump. And then I would just turn and look at the the consultant or the their lobbyist, and they would shake their head. And I'm like, all right, here we go. Mm -hmm. And this makes the meeting fun. But then when they leave, you know, you're you in your position are tasked with saying, why'd you do that? Now we're we didn't talk about the three other priorities we had. So it's yeah. maximizing your time and you're really only going to get 15 minutes of time and you spend it debating yeah. with the elected official. It's fun yeah. for us. I enjoy it. I think, uh, yeah, one of my pet peeves in Washington is and on all sides is. People assume people all too often assume a level of knowledge that doesn't exist. People talk over one another. And that's also a huge point where, when you go into these meetings, assume, I always say, assume a third grade level of knowledge. It's impossible for a member of Congress or a staffer 
to understand your issue at the depth at which you understand your issue because you're in business and you're living it every day. It's, it's impossible. I'm and, about to, I'm about to hang up that you insulted me twice, the Michigan <laughs> colors. And now you told me, I, I can't even understand a fifth grade level. Right. Exactly. Me? I used to play that game show really well. So no, people, don't... people throw around acronyms. They, yes, they do. They, you're right. They assume everybody understands what they care about and, and they generally don't. And you have to assume a, a very low level of knowledge and you're, you're never going to insult, you're never going to insult anybody and they can move you along if they want to move you along. That's the way to, to position it. And you've got to, you got to spoon feed it to folks. Well, you do. And, and that's a good way to start out. However, I, I will tell you too, you as a consultant and, and, and our clients will know within the first minute, whether or not you need to level that up, whether or not that staffer sure. or the member understands the issue more than you thought they would. Yeah. And, 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 and experience also matters too. Now, the longer <laughs> I served, the better I understood the issue. So people would come in sure. knowing that we could talk at a certain level. So that, that goes back to what we talked about earlier though, Howard, it's understanding who you're going to see. Yeah, know your audience. And not a lot of clients do the homework beforehand. I found that out on the other side. This is where me as a former executive branch official and you as a former member of Congress and staffer may have a different view about the level of knowledge of you and your former colleagues on Capitol Hill, but we can leave that <laughs> debate for another day. Well, that was... <laughs> Well, they may have the knowledge, but they still may not vote the way you want them yeah, to yeah, yeah. Well, because it, of their constituents. Yeah. And by the way, this isn't, of course, as you know better than I do, not just a matter of voting. Um, this isn't just a matter of legislating. Yeah. Congress, like I always tell our clients, Congress has a megaphone. And this is very much about oversight and Oh, the oversight agenda. It's very much about Congress as an influencer lobbying. Legislating is one component of the picture, but it is by no means uh, the only thing we go in and talk about. I would say it's, you know, half of what we go in and talk about. The other half is, is Congress as an influencer. They have the, they have the megaphone. They have an oversight over the executive branch. And so it's not just legislating. And there's so many ways to use advocacy to advance your priority that goes beyond the four corners of a bill um, Congress may pass. And, and that's, uh, I'll tell you, like, when you're on the executive branch side, like I was, your relationship with Congress is not yes it is from time to time um uh it involves legislation but day to day it's much more about oversight it is and, about oversight and, and by the way it is not pleasant to be in the position where um you're an executive branch agency being hauled up to capitol hill which happened you know, when you're general counsel of an agency like I was, you're up there every week, multiple times, answering questions, talking to the committees of jurisdiction in member offices, talking about issues. I remember, uh, I, well, you would have overlapped with him as a staffer, Don Manzullo from your from, oh, yeah. from the great state of Illinois. Mad dog. I once sat in his office with our CEO at XM for, for 90 minutes. Well, he pulled out a whiteboard and literally drew pictures of stick figures illustrating an XM transaction and just beating the hell out of us for, for 90 minutes. It's not, it's, and by the way, like on, on that side of the ledger, in terms of interacting with Congress, you have to have and build the relationship in spite of that. You I do. have a great relationship. Things can get very contentious. And we had a a very significant issue involving what was called domestic economic impact 
in terms of a transaction XM was financing. I won't bore our listeners with it, but it, it, in the semiconductor industry. Mm-hmm. And Senator Crapo represents Micron, and they absolutely brutalized us for the better part of a year over this transaction. And it was this very, very ugly episode, but I was able to go in and build a relationship with Senator Crapo's office um, as a senior XM official, notwithstanding the fact that we were in a different place on a policy level because I was because I was deferential, because I had respect for the office, because I pushed back, but I I pushed back with with respect for the office and the process. And to this day, I have a great relationship with those folks that work for him, notwithstanding the fact that we were on opposite sides on an issue. There's a, And by the way, that happens with what we do now. Not everything we do is going up to the hill and just try to get people to do what we want. Sometimes it's trying to get them not to do something they want to do or going up on an issue where it's a, a contentious issue where there are two sides as opposed to you're just trying to get something in a bill. Or, you know, I we have a client where um, members of Congress and senators have gone out on television and and made certain statements about about things and and then you have to walk into their office and explain to them why what they did is is off base and why they shouldn't do it again and it's this isn't all you know handshakes and you know and cigars it's in fact it's very little of that it's this is it's about influencing people. It's about working with people. It's about bringing people along. It's about respect. It's about being nice, et cetera. Well, and you, and all of that about being nice and respectful and you still wanted me to come work with you. What is wrong with you? Seriously, I know. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you on the executive branch side, it's. That's what I want to ask you about. Yeah. Cause I, I, I've got questions about the executive branch because. Fire away. You know, look, you, you mentioned a few things in regard to, you know, you don't like being hauled up as an executive branch employee to Congress. So, you know, you start to see on with the oversight agenda now uh, a lot of pushback from federal agencies. I mean, what's the difference between when you were working in the Bush and the Obama administrations when it comes to congressional oversight versus what you see today on how that oversight is being exercised, but also why there seems to be such a contention because i always thought and I, and and you got to tell me if i'm wrong that there's always no matter the white house is in republican hands or democratic hands there's always going to be that contentiousness when it comes to the oversight agenda between congress and the executive branch is that true and what's the difference there's, today yeah there's always it's always contentious it's i mean Look, there's never any love lost between the executive branch and Congress. It doesn't matter. Like you said, it doesn't matter. Republican, Democrat. I mean, obviously, the Senate Democrats, the majority in the Senate is more likely to be predisposed to what the Biden White House wants to do. But as I always say, most issues take place below below the level of the headlines. Right. And it's not it's not gun control that people are kind of working on day to day. It's much it's much more discrete and limited issues. And there's never any love lost between the executive branch and Congress. No one likes to be overseen. No one likes to be watched. No one likes to be told they should do something differently than they want to do it. And, you know, People in the executive branch are swimming in their the lane they're swimming in. They're swimming in 24-7, 365. It's one small piece of what a member of Congress is, is doing. And so folks in the executive branch feel like they know more about their issue. They know more what they're talking about. They know the right thing to do more than members of Congress. 
And and by the way, they're right because they are swimming in the well, they they may not be right that what they want to do makes sense, but they're right that they know inherently know more about their issue. Um, but Congress has a role to play, and you've got to respect the process. Um, but uh it's it's um there's never any love lost between the executive branch and Congress, just like there's never any love lost between the House and the Senate. There are all these hidden rules of Washington that you and I know that the average person doesn't see. People of the same party fight more with one another than people on opposite sides of the aisle. I know. That's why I'm here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Let me ask you, does, 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 Partisanship matters somewhat. I mean, look, I, I found that out. I, I, I served under, uh, I served when President Obama was in office. I served all four years of President Trump and two years of President Biden. And I always laughed as, as, a, as a Republican legislator when I would call over and advocate for a project or something back home, let's say for large infrastructure grants. I mean, how much of a coincidence do you think it was, Howard, that I wasn't getting any of my requests during the Obama administration, getting all of them during Trump and none of them during Biden. And it just goes back and forth. So there is some politics that that are being played at the the executive branch level, right? Of course, of course there are. And and by the way, it's become, to your question, I would say more the case. It used to be that there were there was, I think, more power in the agencies and as administrations, I think it power has become more consolidated in the White House. So, and that makes things inherently more political. And so it's harder to um, get through the kind of politics of a situation or easier to use the politics of a situation, depending upon where you are, to to get things done or, or, or not get them done. So I, th- I think things have become more political on all sides. Which, which president you worked under uh, was least political? I mean, I think Bush was, I, I, I real I literally think as administrations have gone by, I think Clinton was less political than, Bush was less political than Obama, was less political than Trump, was less. Po- it, it's I, I literally think executive power is consolidating in the White House at the political level more and more as administ- as e- with each successive administration. You think that has something to do with um, and I don't know when you left the Obama administration exactly, Howard, but. Mid-09 um, or late-09. Well, okay, so you weren't there when the DACA executive order was put in place, right? Yeah. Well, then when the Supreme Court ruled that that, that order was good to stand, I, I felt like I felt like that just exacerbated executive branch power into thinking they could just govern without Congress and Congress abdicating <laughs> abdicating our ability to govern. I used to watch some of my colleagues who were the, the most constitutional conservative candidates until president Trump got in. And then all of a sudden they want him to do executive orders for everything. Yeah. Drove me crazy. Is that, do you think there was a nexus between that decision and what we're seeing now with the consolidation of power in the executive branch, especially since you've been there? I mean, I think there are all sorts of things. That's certainly one of them that have happened over time that um, changed the, the power dynamic, but some of it is just, I think a desire to try to con- a need to try to control the narrative, given how partisan, how divided we are, and you know the culture wars that dominate the headlines. I think it's. I think there are lots of things that have contributed to to the desire to consolidate executive power. If you look at the State Department, the State Department really has. I mean as each administration goes by has less and less power and influence. It's all, all the foreign policy is, is done out of 1600 Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, the, the XM XM is an independent agency. And I, ne- at the early part of my time there, I never felt like the white house was 
exerting influence over what we were doing. We were doing what we were doing. It didn't frankly change that much from one administration to the next. And I think, I think in the Obama years that uh, began to, to erode. And I think it's much more white house driven today than it was, you know, 20 years ago. It's there's been significant consolidation of, of executive power because of a desire to try to con- try to control the narrative. Well, it's, it's interesting for me because I served as a staffer when President Bush was in office for eight years, and then the first four years of President Obama as a staffer. And remember, you know, we're advocating on behalf of our constituents. We're calling agencies. And, and a lot of times, you know, the agencies wouldn't give us the answer that we wanted for our constituents. We would call the White House. And you're right. My experience calling the Bush Office of Legislative Affairs was a lot less productive than calling the Obama White House Office of Legislative Affairs since I had some relationships with some of them at the staffer level before they got to the White House. But in the end, I agree with you. I think what we're seeing today is indicative of what we're seeing polling wise. And, and there was something you mentioned a minute ago that you mentioned last week, too. And I, I got I wanted to do a little deeper dive. You mentioned the culture wars. Because yeah. we were talking about Ron DeSantis last week. And granted, there's some disagreement over whether or not his his fight against Disney should be a priority of his or not. But I think he clearly has decided that 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 that's good for him in the Republican primary. But I wanted to ask you, because I thought about it after we got off the phone or got off the call last week. Do you think that most Americans just don't care about the culture wars? Or do you think it's it's an issue that gets way too much attention? What do you mean when you say it? I think they, um, no, I think they do care. If they didn't care, people wouldn't be focusing on it. How much do they care? That, that was my question. Because I... I I honestly go back and forth on, I mean, I'm starting to feel like you, Howard. I'm like, oh, I feel this way one minute. Oh, I'm I'm next <laughs> here. Next thing you know, you're going to call me a globalist. But Guilty. Yeah. Um, I think people care about what they care about and don't care about what they, I mean. So there's a different care level. about the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Hell yeah, they care. They did. Is it? Is it the only thing they care about? Absolutely no. not. So on the matrix of, of priorities, Disney, fighting with Disney is probably a lot lower than the Dobbs decision. Um, clearly a lot lower than, than Bud Light's disastrous decision that uh, has, has led to them losing, what, $27 billion or $28 billion in market cap. Yeah. So there's a, there's a priority matrix on the issues. Yeah, for sure. But I think, I I think people are, look, I think people fundamentally want to live in a country that's fair and, and, and balanced and depending upon what a given issue may be. I mean, the pendulum does swing too far on, on some of this stuff. People don't want a nanny state. This is America. And so I think, there are, it depends how you're, how you're looking at it. There are, you can be, for example, I mean, I, I think so much of this Rodney is like upside down to begin with, yeah. like, and I don't want to start a discussion about abortion, but you know, I, I think you can be pro choice, pro, pro Roe v. Wade and and not want a nanny state at the same time. I mean, I don't want people telling me how to think and what I can say and 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 where to go and what kind of language to use. I mean, it's like it but I'm like unabashedly pro-choice. And and I think there I think I think so I think it's complicated. Well, it always is and 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 frankly, you know, these are issues it, it is difficult to talk about, but it's always funny in the, the culture battles now that we seem to see, you know, you mentioned something just a second ago. It's like changing language. How do we speak? Yeah. I, I always love, you know, I, I would sit as elected official. I'm like, oh, I can't say that anymore. <laughs> can't right. say that anymore. I'm going to get canceled. Somebody's going to get mad. Then I finally right. realized after trying to walk that fine line, it, it's like, you know what? Most of America, as you mentioned, doesn't yeah, it doesn't care. care. 
Most of America doesn't care. I remember the debate on on gender neutral bathrooms back during the Obama administration. There was a a big a, a, a big to do at the White House when when President Obama put the first gender neutral bathroom in. And some reporter, because I was a target of race, asked me about it, Howard. And I stopped and I looked at at, at her and I said, uh, I got three of them at my house. And <laughs> she goes, what? I go, yeah, they're called bathrooms. Just go in and use it. I mean, right. we're, we're talking about the White House, okay? We're talking about my house. I mean, we don't have to make this into such a big deal. However, then yeah. it gets into the women's sports issue, and it just goes and goes and goes. So there are different levels of this culture battle. And, and, um, and I think you're going to see, as we mentioned last week, presidential candidates uh, jumping onto an issue that they think is going to yeah. help them. Yeah. And, and we got to see if they go too far for the, I mean, for the general. I think it's people. I think what's happening is the culture wars are assuming are consuming all the oxygen that are out there. And I'm, I, I can't remember if I said this last week or not, but meanwhile, stuff's getting done. Yeah. And, and it, it is below the level of the headlines, often on a bipartisan basis. I think I did say this and it's like, I think we're letting the culture wars obscure people's view of the things that are like actually happening and they're, they're missing the boat. Um, And in a way it's like the business of God, I feel like Washington is more functional, has been more functional for the last two years, even with divided you know, now divided government, even under divided government, it feels more functional than it has been in a while. And I think some of that is because it's because of what I'm saying. The culture wars are consuming all the oxygen and people aren't paying attention to the fact that the parties actually are working together and the parties are taking advantage of that and moving things forward. And yep. And I, I think it's interesting Back on your back on the executive branch stuff for a second. Sure. I think one thing that one point I wanted to make is that people assume that they can go to Congress and push the executive branch to do whatever it is they want to do. And you mean mean I couldn't? Is that what you're telling me? Only on Tuesdays. (laughs) Um, It's part of the process, but it's it's kind of it's apropos of this kind of culture wars discussion to some degree because there's like all this noise up here but then there's like stuff happening out of view in the real world and people in the executive branch aren't sitting there you know they don't jump when congress says jump and i think there are a lot of lazy lobbyists out there who tell their clients who feed their clients a strategy for moving something on the executive branch level that's just about that that's just based on Congress trying to cram something down the executive branch's throats. And that's not productive. Do you think a two two-tiered approach where you have a legislative approach and an executive branch approach is the I, best? I think it's actually, I would say three tiers. It's going to the hill and it's all timing. Going to the hill is part of is certainly part of it and certainly an important and valid part of the equation. But you've got to also be talking to the bureaucracy and you've got to talk to the political level. And look, that's not every issue. Sometimes you can go straight to the political level. Sometimes you don't need to go to the political level. Sometimes you don't need to go to the Hill, but you need you need the you need to be paying attention to those three pieces of the stool. And there's even a fourth one, which is on some issues, which is what's being said in the in the media and that aspect of things. But you you just going, I call it lazy lobbying, just going to the hill, getting a bunch of letters written to smack down the executive branch is not that is not a strategy because it's guess inter- what? It's, inter- it's entertainment. It's right. The executive branch doesn't care. Um, I always wondered that. So when we send a letter, does it depend on who sends it? uh, To some degree, if it's your the chair of your oversight committee of your committee of jurisdiction, it's it certainly matters more than if some random member sends sends a letter. And as evidence of that, let's say 
uh, let's say your rank and file member sends a letter to an executive branch agency and asks for documents regarding some decision. You know how that request gets treated? Trash. It, it no, it doesn't go in the trash. It goes in the pile of FOIA requests that the agency. It gets treated the same way as if a member of the public wrote that request. It's entirely different when it comes from the chair of a committee of jurisdiction. Then you treat it as if a court equivalent to a subpoena from a court. You treat it as if it's a request on the same level as if it's a request from um, a judicial authority. You turn over the documents. There's always a negotiation, yada, yada, yada. But And it's not actually a subpoena. But the point is it has higher level you actually have to engage and you actually have to turn over turn over documents. Um, and it, it's treated that way anyway. But a rank and file member, it's treated like a Freedom of Information Act request. Really? That's interesting. I mean, I I always like to uh, you know, tell people you don't have to just be the committee of jurisdiction, but that goes back to the first point that we made. It's about relationships. If you have relationships yeah. with people at that agency and you're yeah. not in the committee of jurisdiction. You can get what you need um, without sending a, a, a letter over and surprising them and getting stacked on the floor. Yeah, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that the inquiry from a rank and file member doesn't matter or a, a letter doesn't matter. I'm saying that a request I'm talking about specifically a request for documents. Also, it, it pisses off people sitting in those chairs. They have jobs to do. They're busy. Yep. It pisses them off. And, 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 and they want you to call them first. I mean, try and totally. ask them the question before. And it's, it's about respect and it, it's about that relationship building and, and understanding that, you know, just because someone works at an agency you may not agree with, it doesn't mean they're not people. Right. And at the end of the day, that's, I think it's where you started. It's where the, it's where the rubber meets the road. Well, I so, think this is I think this is indicative of of how you can actually um you know people don't think that Republicans and Democrats can talk anymore. I always used to say that and you know 90% of the people, 98% of the people aren't on Twitter, which means they're not caring about everything that Donald Trump says or everything that that Joe Biden says or or what the media says. 98% of the media lives on Twitter. I mean uh, yeah, totally. And and look, like, let's just take, I have Ohio on the brain for some reason. Look, Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance, does anybody think they have anything in common from a political point of view? Of course not. But they both represent the state of Ohio. And are there things that their offices are collaborating on to advance the interests of the state of Ohio? There are probably a hundred so this isn't this isn't about this this isn't about most of the time it isn't about big picture politics it's about understanding where people come together it's about relationships it's about shared priorities it's about it's about understanding the nuances of the process like like I was mentioning a minute ago you got to know when to, you got to know when to pull the congressional lever of power to smack an agency around. I mean, we do it every day, but, but you've got to, you got to know when you got to know when, and you've got to talk to the bureaucracy. Uh, you know, my view is, and we'll stop in a minute because I think people are probably tired of hearing us <laughs> wax about our former jobs, but they're never tired. Because no. there, Evan's going to have a good time listening to this. Anna one. told me this. We have to slim this down to twenty minutes, which I said is pretty much impossible. Today we're absolutely obliterating her is twenty it minute. Anna rule. or Alex? Because I keep seeing Alex Vecchio on here with Anna's picture. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. We'll figure that out. But <laughs> um, it's 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 all. My view is there's so much that can be accomplished walking through the front door and having a common sense conversation with people that have a reason to care about your issue where you can have a, with whom you can have a reasonable conversation. If you're polite, deferential and respectful and have, have both have a reason to have the conversation. And there's, 
I don't know. There's so much about this town that I think gets lost in, um, in people's misconceptions. And I think, look, I think that's why we're good at what we do. Um, that's why, you know, our clients and hopefully enjoy working with us. I think we're tuned into this thing at all levels and, uh, I want to get a, I, I want to get a teaser in here so that people will listen all the way through. I'm going to say something about Michael Heller at the end. So whenever somebody writes this note up that they've got to, you know, they've, they've got to uh, understand to put something in to wait till the end to hear what I say about Heller. Well, it's the end. So what are you going to say about so Michael? I want to say, look, this is the reason a conversation like this is, is one of the reasons I came here. I didn't know Howard Schweitzer before I came here. I didn't know Michael Heller before I came here. But Howard mentioned earlier, he's, you know, on, on the abortion issue. He's pro-choice. Everybody knows me, knows I'm pro-life. But you know what? We can sit and talk together and without screaming at each other. Unfortunately, there are too many people in America on the far right and the far left that can't. I, I will remind people, remember our first call with Michael when I was going through the process of deciding where to go. And we have a great conversation. And Michael Heller at the end of the call goes, hey, I got one more question for you. What's with all you Republicans and guns? And as somebody who, you know, got shot at on a baseball field, I'm like debating with the guy who's the CEO of a company that, uh, or the firm that I, I, I think I, I really like, even in the first few interviews. And I got off the phone, I'm like, well, there goes that one. But you know what? The guy like Michael, folks like Howard, you guys, what makes a good consulting firm? What makes a good lobbying firm? are people that can understand the issue and not just scream about issues. And today, I hope everybody understands that's what matters most and how we build our business and how we're successful. Yeah, let's let's leave it there. Although I would like to roast Michael for a couple of minutes, but I guess we don't have time for that today. Well, next week we're on break. So we got a lot less to talk uh, about legislatively. Man. Let's make it personal. I bet we could get Michael done in about 20 minutes, make Anna happy. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Hope uh, hope you learned something from this and, and enjoyed it. And we will be back on a couple of weeks, July 4th break. Uh, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.